You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading is from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, that you have given us yourself, that you have given us a way of wisdom to know you and to walk in righteousness and in humility and in the knowledge of you. So, Father, we pray that we might know and see and trust you just a bit more this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a K through third grade evening, so if you want to go with Mr. Johnson over here, if you're a kindergartner through third grader and want to spend some time together, I think y'all are going to be thinking about Cain and Abel from Genesis 4 and 5. Parents, I'm sure you have nothing to worry about. There's not going to be any Cain and Abel situations happening. Mr. Johnson will take care of everything. Uh, All right, see you guys later. Uh, I've got a cough drop in, so hopefully that won't annoy you. It'll probably be gone in a little while, but I figured that'd be better than uh, perhaps coughing my way through this, so we can pray to the Lord for his kindness here. Well, if you weren't with us last week, we began thinking about what we do together here on Sundays. Typically at Christ Church, we will preach through a book of the Bible, uh, just taking God's word to us in its full context, but we are going to take seven weeks or so to just think about what God's people do when they gather together. So, uh, last week we began to think about God's call to worship, that even though we as humans are always and constantly worship, worshiping, even sinfully worshiping things, people, ideas who are not God, when we gather here together, what we do here actually and really matters. It matters because God is worthy of our worship. And because the things that we love and desire, we thought about last week, are actually habit-formed. The things that we love and desire are actually habit-formed. The habits that we have in our life actually shape and form our loves, and not the other way around. Not that our loves shape our habits, but our habits actually shape our loves. So if this is true, then the habits, the order, the liturgy of our worship will, over the course of several decades, Lord willing, shape our loves, shape our worship. And so as our first element in our order of service or our liturgy of God's call to worship, then we 
gather, we thought about last week, we gather, we don't necessarily invite God to be with us, we don't welcome him into our presence with us, but that he, as the primary and most glorious being in the universe, invites us into his presence. He calls us, like Israel, to worship him in the wilderness. He calls us to worship him and into his service. And yet, just like Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, there is an immediate problem. Last week, we thought about all sin being just misplaced or misdirected worship. So while it is God who calls us to worship in coming into his holy and righteous presence, the first thing that should be apparent to all of us as human beings is that left to ourselves, we are confronted with a barrier of our own making, of our unholy worship of sin. And so, it's good and right, but also necessary for us to stop, for us to reflect, for us to confess our sin before we, like Nadab and Abihu, when we were thinking through in Leviticus, before we just go gallivanting into God's presence. And yet, unlike Nadab, unlike Abihu, unlike Aaron or Moses or David, we Christians on this side of the cross experience a reality of assurance, of belonging that these saints of old could have only dreamed about. So tonight we're going to think through confession and then we're going to think through assurance in just two halves of this sermon. First, of confession to God and then second, assurance from God. So first of all, let's think about confession. What in the world are we doing when we read this confession of sin together? The first question that we need to ask in light of living on this side of the cross is do we Christians actually need to ongoingly confess our sin? That's a good question to ask. During our time in Leviticus, we were regularly flipping back and forth, especially uh, to the book of Hebrews, but back and forth to the New Testament where we read things like this in Hebrews 7, that Christ has no need like those Old Testament high priests to offer sacrifices daily since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. We Protestant Christians rightly feel a sense of, of sympathy for our Catholic friends who often feel a burden of sin that then they need to ongoingly take to a priest or a confessional booth. We want to take them by the shoulders and open up our Bibles to places like Colossians 2, where Paul wrote, God made us alive with Christ, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus says, it is finished as he is dying on the cross, he meant it. His priestly work of mediation on our behalf now has reconciled us to God, tearing the curtain from top to bottom and ushering us into the holy places as adopted and beloved sons and daughters of the Most High King. We've actually had some folks with us at Christ Church who ultimately decided to move on to a different church because, among other things, this weekly confession of sin that we do. In their understanding, while we are still sinners, yes, this kind of thing, this ongoing uh, acknowledgement and even dwelling on sin places too heavy an emphasis on sin, thereby de-emphasizing our eternal peace with God. And so you'll often hear Christians say, well, shoot, you might have even heard me say, and you might even hear me say again in the right context, that there is nothing that you can do that can make God love you any more or any less. That is true. In Christ, we are confidently his. 
And if that's true, if we are his, he will hold me fast, then why this like continual highlighting of sin, this confession of sin? Does confession overemphasize sin and underemphasize the love of God? No. Let's work through that quick answer uh, with five quickish things here on confession before we move on to assurance. Why confession? Why do we confess our sin? The first thing, confession magnifies God. Remember in 1 John 1, when we were thinking through the book of 1 John a few months ago, John writes that this is the message that we have heard from him, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Confession recognizes the holiness of God. If everything that we talked about last week, that it is God himself who calls us to worship because he is the most beautiful and glorious and worthy being in the universe, then confession is in an immediate and ongoing way of exactly what Kyle said earlier, of recognizing that God is God and we are not. While I emphasize or empathize with those, perhaps many of you, who are tempted to imagine God as this perpetually angry being, constantly disappointed with you, culturally, I think this is actually not the biggest misperception of God. The cultural air we breathe is not a God who is overly angry, but one who is overly nice, one who's maybe even a bit squishy. God is just kind of like the warm and kind old church lady, not a God of power and glory. So confession rightly develops within us the reality, even the ongoing New Testament reality, this side of the cross of Christ, of the fear of God. Not afraid of God, but right reverence of God. Remember when we were thinking through in Leviticus, like kayaking amongst a humpback whale. Confession magnifies God. God is God and we are not. But second, confession restores our communion with God. This goes back to 1 John 1 also. Remember 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is the difference between union and communion that we thought so much about in that book. That when a sinner puts his or her true faith in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, that person is once and for all made right with God for eternity. There is nothing that can snatch that person from the Father's hand as we'll consider more in just a minute, nor life, nor death, nor distress, nor famine, nor persecution, none of that can separate us from the love of Christ. We have union with Christ, united to Christ by his life and death and resurrection. But we should be careful in now thinking because I am justified before God, I'm united to Christ, that now the rest of my life and how I live my life doesn't really matter. Nothing I can do in my life, how I live, act, or believe, will have no bearing on my relationship with the Lord. Remember how we intuitively thought this to be true, and just thinking about other relationships in our lives, especially for those of us who are married, that the insoluble union of our marriage with our spouse is not in question, but our communion, our daily deepening or shallowing, is that a word? the waxing and waning of deep friendship with someone that you are in union with can obviously happen. So while our union with Christ is fixed and firm, can our communion and fellowship with the triune God fluctuate? For every Christian sitting out there in a pew, I think we should all be able to say experientially, yes. 
And the existence and ongoing reality of sin in our lives is the greatest factor in disrupting our fellowship, our friendship, our communion with God. And left unchecked and undealt with can be the greatest factor in causing our love for God to just grow altogether cold. Sin loves the darkness, and so expose it to the light. So confession restores communion with God, both individually but also communally as well. Here at Christ Church, we all speak and pray the same words together. We read them at the same pace. We're all saying the same words. It doesn't matter if you are young or old, rich or poor, male or female. We are all equal sinners in need of equal grace. So when we gather and confess together, we are bound even further together in this corporate reality of sin, of needed confession. Even how we have failed and sinned corporately as a church, not just as individuals. We are a church in need of God's grace. But now, third, in thinking of deepening communion, confession can also even improve our moods. Think about what Eric read these first five verses of Psalm 32. Let me read this again. David writes in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's the thing about sin and confession. Throughout the Psalms, certainly here in Psalm 32, but throughout the Psalms, there is a regular connection, a profound connection between sin and our moods, how we feel about life. That when we attempt to skate through life like little kids with our hands over our eyes, just assuming that if we can't see things that God can't, if we can't hear things that God can't, pretending that sin doesn't exist or it's not actually that big of a deal, we are actually living in like a harmful and ongoing state of cognitive dissonance, of like this pulling, stretching, tearing even, straining between heart and hands between external and internal. God has created us to live full lives before his face, internal and external alignment. And confession acknowledges that reality. It is living in the light. So it should come as no surprise that after David experiences the healing of confession in Psalm 34, he said, or Psalm 32, he says this in verse 7. He says to God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Rest, he experiences. Joy, he experiences. Comfort, which comes from doing the difficult work of looking in the mirror and speaking to God about what is real, about reality. Back to 1 John. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A life that lacks confession, confession to God, confession to one another, is a life actually of deception. I listened to this podcast with stories 
of former spies, uh, mostly American CIA, CIA agents. And they just tell stories about their careers as espionage agents. But at the end of each episode is just a couple minutes of reflection, of like looking back on their career and thinking about their lives. And most of these men and women talk about how emotionally exhausting their careers were. Having to essentially play a part, becoming an actor with really, really high stakes, or using people with lies or half-truths to get what they wanted, not being able to share about their work and their difficulties with their spouse or their family or their friends, and how most of them would actually not want this kind of life for their children. That's not the life that we are meant to live. Lives of spiritual espionage, of living lives that are two-faced, spiritually acting, of playing a part that we think that we're supposed to play. Christchurch, do you want to live a more joyful life? I hope so. I think we would all say yes to that. Let's keep confessing our sin then together. Let's become who we are in Christ, speaking about reality in Christ, not pretending. Confession brings healing, brings peace, and it counterintuitively brings joy. It seems really hard. I don't want to deal with reality. I don't want to struggle through this, but on the other end is joy, just living in the light. Which brings us to the fourth thing confession does. Confession is a means of putting sin to death. How? Well, if we agree with God about the nature of his holiness, the nature of our sin, then we will more and more agree with God that sin must be put to death. So think about this. Just a few verses after Colossians 2, 13 and 14, where Paul talked about the record of sin being canceled, nailed to the cross. He then says this just a couple of verses later in Colossians 3, 5. He then says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. So just a minute ago, Paul said all of that sin, all that record of sin has been canceled at the cross, been nailed to the cross, put away with. And then a couple of verses later, he says, now put all that to death. What in the world? Well, if we don't confess to God, if we don't agree with him that there are still earthly passions, earthly desires within us. If we ignore those, then we actually don't think that those are things worthy of being put to death. Speaking about sin aloud to God and to others is doing soil work, is garden work, both pulling out harmful weeds, but then tilling the soil to unearth what you didn't even know was underneath there, of even then replanting and fertilizing with the goodness and the health of the gospel. Which now gets us to the second half of our time together here. Christian confession is never intended to stay there. It actually has no power in and of itself as in a Catholic understanding of working an ultimate salvation for you. Salvation is of the Lord. But Logan, I think we have, might have one more last point here that confession is a means to understanding assurance. And so now we'll get to our second half here, that confession is never meant to make the Christian feel bad or guilty. It is intended to make us free, to free us to lives of joy and obedience. Confession is like the front porch. 
Some days you might hang out on the front porch a little longer than others, but the point of the porch is to get you inside the house. And the house is assurance, is belonging to God. So now, secondly, assurance from God. Psalm 32 is an amazing chapter, and I'd encourage you to keep digging deeply in that chapter this week and ongoingly for the rest of your lives and thinking about what confession does and how we are to approach God and confess sin to God. But the assurance that David experienced, even in Psalm 32, just pales in comparison to what you and I can experience in Christ. If you've got a Bible with you, maybe you can flip over to Romans 8 now. That's where we're going to be spending most of the rest of our time together. In Romans 8, this first verse of Romans 8, 8 8.1, we read that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the central arguments in this entire chapter is that the Christian can have full assurance, surety of belonging to God through present life with God. That at the moment when the person recognizes his need for peace and turns to Jesus in faith, telling God that I realize that I was made to know you and to walk with you in friendship, and that I have not kept my end of the bargain, my only hope is in you keeping both your end and my end of the bargain, that in your substitutionary death on the cross, in your resurrection life, that I can be united to the triune God by faith in this person. Now that person gets brought to life, enveloped and intertwined into the triune life of God that he was made for, a life of joy, of light, of life, and peace. I mean, just look at the work of our triune God in accomplishing salvation in Romans 8. In verse 2, the spirit of life has set you free. Verse 3, God has done what the law couldn't. How? By sending his son. Why? Well, not to just break down stubborn people to make them, like, say a password of, like, okay, Jesus, and now, like, somebody, like, begrudgingly lets you in to the speakeasy or something. That is not Christianity. But to bring us into life with him, a life of joy and peace, of friendship with God, of shalom, of flourishing life of peace that we were created to live in. Well, beginning in verse 31 of Romans 8, Paul is going to close out the chapter with a bunch of rhetorical questions. We've actually sung a song tonight already of rhetorical questions. Now, why this fear and unbelief? We're actually going to close this service tonight with another song of a bunch of rhetorical questions of, and can it be? But here, Paul is pulling out every tool that he has to persuade the Romans and us that God actually loves us. And he asks these rhetorical questions that actually then have no answer. John Stott says about these questions, he says, Paul hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And this first question that he asks in verse 31 is this, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Now he asks this question in this way because if he had just asked, hey Romans, 
hey, Christians in Albuquerque, who is against us? We could have responded with a long list of significant opponents. The world is opposed to Christ. The world is opposed to his people. Our own flesh, our own sinful impulses, these are certainly against what God is making his people into. What about the entire list that Paul will give in verse 35? That of tribulation and distress, of persecution, of famine, of nakedness or danger or sword. All of those are against the people of God. Death itself is certainly against us. Sometimes circumstances are so bad, finances are so difficult, health is failing, relationships are disintegrating, sometimes it feels as if the entire universe is against us. But God is not asleep at the wheel. Or even worse, how we might think of it, that God is awake at the wheel, but either uncaring or unwilling as he intentionally crashes the car or incapable of preventing others from crashing into the car. No. God is the God of the universe. He has created the universe with a word. There is certainly evil in the world and creation groans in pain, but Jesus promises to be with his people even unto the end of the age and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So for those who are united to Christ by faith, since God is for them, then who can be against them? There are many, many things, opponents against the people of God, many opponents against the person of God. But if Jesus is for them, then who can be against them? He doesn't answer the question, but the silent answer is no one. Then he asks the second question, verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, if Paul had just asked, will God not graciously give us all things? We might like him and haw and then flat out say, it appears not to be. No, he's not. Are you kidding? Like, look around. Look at this mess in my life and in this world. Look how my life is turning out. No, he is not giving us all things. But we Christians know that our circumstances are an unreliable barometer for the love of God. What is the barometer for understanding the love of God? How do his children know that God loves them? How does Paul ask the question to prove God's love? He points us directly to the cross. We often sing, did e'er such love and sorrow meet? The wonderful cross. Has there ever been an act of love so great as the maker of the universe who would take on human flesh and be born in a barn? And then not only that, but to live and die for his people who hated him. If God has done in the hard part, he has given us Jesus to live and die for us, how in the world will we now think that he'll abandon us and not complete the work of his promise? It's like if I decided that I wanted to buy Marcy a really fancy car for Christmas at the end of this year, and I took on another job that I would start working on evenings and the weekends hours and hours, maybe working a frustrating job, but because I really, really wanted to get her this car, I joyfully just went to work. 
And in late October, I started doing some shopping, some car shopping, and in comparing prices, I find, I find a killer deal on this car in Pittsburgh. So I buy a one-way flight to Pennsylvania, I haggle with the car salesman there, and I finally buy the car, and I drive all the way back across the country, drive across New Mexico. I finally get to Albuquerque, I'm in our, I'm closing in on our neighborhood, and then I decide as I'm just a couple minutes away, it's like, you know what? That was really silly. That's kind of like a waste of money or something. I don't know. You know what? Forget it. And then I like pull over in the Smith's parking lot and I leave the car there and I walk home. That's ridiculous. I I never gave the car to her. Now I'm sure the metaphor breaks down, but the triune God is driving the car in your neighborhood. He has done the impossibly hard work of purchasing and accomplishing your salvation. It is yours. You don't yet fully get to enjoy the benefit of driving around town with the top down and the wind in your hair, of utter sinlessness, of the joyfully content worship of God that we will experience for eternity, but to assume that God is now abandoning you when the culmination of his hard work on your behalf is right around the corner. To assume that is just the height of short-sightedness and self-centeredness. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He doesn't answer, but the answer is he won't. Of course he will. Not that he will give you all things like you might think that verse is saying, like he's going to give you the dream house and the dream spouse. Not those kind of all things, but the kind of things that we actually need. The kinds of things that we would want if we knew all things that God knows. Christian, do not look around the world, at the world, and wonder if God loves you. Look to the cross and know that he loves you. Immeasurable, never ending, the depth and length of his love for you at the cross of Christ. So every Sunday, when Kyle reads a verse or two of assurance after we have confessed our sin to God, just rest. Just rest and let these waves of joy and of assurance just just surround you, just wave over you, wash over you, that he has brought you peace in Christ, and there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. And he will give you all things to make your joy complete in him. Oh, my soul, arise. Behold the risen Christ, your great high priest, your spotless sacrifice. God owns you as his child. Shake off your guilty fears, my soul, arise. That is the gospel. But then Paul keeps going. Questions 3 and 4 in verse 33, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, if I walked outside and defiantly hurled the questions into space of who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Like an entire stadium of people would rise up with condemnations against me. Marcy would say, I got some charges. He can be lazy, self-centered. He gets annoyingly frustrated with home projects, making it impossible to be in, in the same house with him for that day. In 15 years of marriage, he has wronged me and hurt me. He has made me cry. My kids would stand up and say, we got plenty to say. Sometimes he is more interested in his phone or projects or books or football games than us. He gets frustrated with us and he loses his cool. Many of you would stand up and say, oh, I got something. Don't forget the time that he forgot about that big event in our lives. Or he wasn't very sympathetic. He offered really poor counsel or advice that one time. It wasn't helpful at all. People all over Albuquerque would stand up and contribute and then wait for it, just the people from my past. My sisters sharing past and even present ways that I have sinned against them, my parents with a laundry list of dishonor and disobedience, childhood friends that I have been miserable toward both then and now, high school girlfriends that I did not honor or care for as more important than myself, college roommates that I manipulated or took advantage of, and then above all that, Satan's title himself, the accuser. He stands and says, just look at him with his doubt and with his anxiety. Look at his laziness and his selfishness. Look at his weakness. This is certainly not someone that God is working on or using for his glory. The cacophony, the stadium worth of shouting is deafening. The loud and overwhelming condemnation is crushing. And then God the Father pounds on the gavel and demands order in the court. And the defense attorney stands. He who himself is lowly and gentle of heart, who is humble, who is nothing to behold in and of himself, but then stands and confidently says with authority, that's enough. Nathan is so wrapped up in me, not in anything that he has done, but wrapped up in my work, my obedience, my perfect joy. He is united to me by faith, in love, and in hope. What is past is done away with, thrown into the sea to be remembered no more. What is present is still sin, yes, but it's dying. I have dealt it a mortal blow, and it has no power over him or power to condemn him any longer. Even what is future. I've died for and have been raised to new life for that too, so that's enough. Christian, who 
shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, for you. He loves you more than you can imagine. The Son has given you his life and death, and he intercedes for you this very second. The Spirit hears your groans of weakness and comes with supporting, interceding groans of his own, helping you to increase in hope and in love. Guys, it is just so good to weekly come and cut this groove into our hearts and souls every single week of confession and assurance. A little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper every single week. Because in fact, the good news of the gospel really is not very good news unless the bad news was first very bad news. The good news becomes good news when the bad news was bad. And God saves us from that. The assurance of our union with Christ is only amazing, is only glorious, is only deepening and life-changing unless we are ongoingly coming to the fountain of grace. Not something that we came to in our past, but that we are ongoingly coming to the rivers of living water, of confession and assurance, of repentance and belief, of repentance and belief, of repentance and belief, and repentance and belief. Doing this intentionally and meaningfully just once a week will just undoubtedly translate into the more boring minutes of our life. Doing this each week together, the hope is, is that we begin to experience this repentance and belief and repentance and belief on Wednesday at 3.45 in the afternoon. As we grow in more quickly confessing sin to God, as we learn to confess sin more quickly to one another, as we learn to rest in the finished work of the gospel individually and together, as we long for the return of Christ together, all of this cuts deeply. These habits cut deeply and actually shape our loves, shape our worship. Shape our worship for the God of glorious grace, shape our love for the God who saves will shape our love for each other as just this ragtag group of sinners, of saved and redeemed sinners now who are adopted together into the family of God. This is what we do every week. Habits, 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 habits that change our hearts. Next week, we're going to think about singing and profession. Actually, kind of one of these things, or two of these things, same side of the coin of one thing. Have you ever thought about this is kind of what I introed last week. What in the world we're doing when we're singing? And perhaps you're not a Christian, perhaps you're visiting this church or you're new to Christianity or something like that. What in the world are these Christians doing every week when they sing? We're going to think a lot about the theology of singing together, the theology of music next week together, and of professing our faith in what the Lord has done. So join us next Sunday and let's cut this groove just a little bit more deeply as we come to the God of grace as a group of sinners needing to be assured by his grace. Let's pray that he would do that. Our Father, we are so thankful for your grace. Who can condemn the ones whom you have justified? No one can. 
Lord Jesus, you have lived on our behalf. You have died on our behalf. You have been raised to new life on our behalf, and we cling to you. Father, we pray that by gathering together on Sundays corporately, that you might make us a people of confession, that you might make us a people of confident assurance, that you might make us people who are unafraid of sin because we live in the light, who are not caught unaware of sin or not uh, confused by sin, but that we treat it, we agree with you about it, coming to the cross of Christ, having our record of debt canceled in the Lord Jesus. God, we are so thankful for what you have done, are doing, and will do in us. For the name of Christ and in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.